You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Should we shun Hogwarts Legacy? That is the question that we're going to debate on this episode. And we're going to start with some opening statements just to stake our position, which might change over the course of this show. But everyone should just know where we stand. Dan, do you want to get us started? What is your what are your thoughts? Do you think we should shun Hogwarts Legacy? Good question. So this is something I've been thinking about for a while and it's always hard for me to answer the question should we shun this piece of art that has been created by so many people and sometimes it's easier than others when the people involved are all of one mind on a on a particularly frustrating topic um in this case we're talking about trans rights trans issues and transphobia and i think that my instinct is to say, yes, we should shun this because of the connection to J.K. Rowling and her ideas. It's benefiting her. It's propagating her. But then I think about all those people who make the game. And I think about certain statements that they've put out. And I think, okay, well, they're not J.K. Rowling. So I don't think we should shun the game. We should be critical of it. and. My hope is that this may be a step in taking Harry Potter back for the people who love it and a step in the direction of death of the author for J.K. Rowling, which is very hard to do while the author is still alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just kill the author, you know? <laughs> yes. It's that simple. <laughs> we should be very clear. In in a literary sense, in a critical theory sense. <laughs> yes, this is a theoretical concept. We're not calling yes. for violence, specifically no, not no, doing no. that. Please, <laughs> as Jim Stephanie Sterling once used to say on a Jimquisition, don't fucking do that. <laughs> yes. So there, we're very clear there. Death of the author in the sense that it's just the narrative, not the author and her intentions here. Yes. Some Roland Barthes, right? Yes, yes. Mm, okay, some French literary theory. Always happy to bring it in. <laughs> <laughs> I would also say, no, we should not shun Hogwarts legacy. This is only an opening statement, so again, positions might change. We're going to look into everything and explore everything in detail in just a moment. But yeah. I think, just from the way I ascertain the situation right now, that in a utilitarian sense... It is more important that people can engage in their passion of Harry Potter, especially if that involves a game that allows the creation of and the representation of trans identities. So including the idea of trans identities into the fiction and the lore of Harry Potter, that seems to me more important than to, um, let's say, deprive or try to deprive J.K. Rowling of a very marginal amount of money, considering mm. the amount of money that she already has. So that's why I think we should not shun Hogwarts Legacy. 
We're going to go into detail on all of these matters, but before we do that, we've got two brief items of housekeeping. They both relate to Studying Pixels Plus, which is our Patreon program. And we said that we would donate all of the proceeds that we get from Studying Pixels Plus in March 2022 to Red Cross Ukraine. We're very happy to say that we did that. It actually happened. It's a small amount. I think it's around 50 US dollars. But every little bit helps. And the thing is, I just read the news today and it appears that Red Cross Ukraine is actively trying to reach into Mariupol, which is one of the surrounded cities that is completely crushed to dust, essentially. And that Red Cross is at the moment trying to get civilians out of there, trying to evacuate people. We hope that this donation and the donation that you have done by being a Studying Pixels Plus member, that that might help, even if only a little bit. Of course, you also know that going forward, we always produce a monthly plus episode and we change it. Like every month, it's a new one. And this month, we've got another academic one for you because so many people struggle with coming up with a good research question. I know because I've just recently been correcting term papers again. You know, the <laughs> winter yes. term has ended. And you wouldn't believe how many term papers I look into and I immediately see either there is no research question whatsoever, the research question is too vague, it's just not well phrased, it's not well crafted. And the research question is at the same time one of the most important things of your term paper. If you want to write a term paper, the first thing you need is a proper research question. And that's why we recorded a whole plus episode on the question, what makes a good research question? So if you have any trouble with coming up with a good research question, or if you need help for future papers, talks, article publications, and so on, then this is a plus episode that you might want to listen to. I think it comes out next week, Wednesday, right? Always the first Wednesday of the month. Yeah, and it'll be a nice listen, especially as I know in, uh, in the US at least, we're coming up on final exam time, which means for all of you liberal arts students, you're going to be writing a lot of papers, so it's right in time. <laughs> it's your opportunity. And if you're <laughs> curious about that, then you can go to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. 
I think we both agree trans rights are human rights. Uh, we are both for the trans community. So everything we say moving forward, please understand that's where we're coming from. And I think as we dive into J.K. Rowling's positions, we we find them to be uh, pretty frustrating and, and I would say gross. <laughs> that's my opinion on it at, at any rate. Yeah. We might say some things, and even if it's only in quote throughout this episode, that might make certain people uncomfortable. I mm. think you should be prepared if you're willing to listen to this conversation because we want to have an open debate and we're going to talk about something controversial, right? Especially on social media, this matter of Hogwarts legacy is debated quite heatedly so, naturally because of its ties to J.K. Rowling. I basically came to propose this as a subject for an episode because recently there was a Sony State of Play that specifically focused on Hogwarts Legacy. It showcased the central features of the game. You basically become a student in Hogwarts in the 1800s. You create your own student and then you explore uh, an open world. You can explore Hogwarts itself, learn spells, make friends and fight all kinds of monsters. It was something that when I saw it, I thought, wow, this actually looks really cool. Yeah. However, when you go online then, you notice that there is a weird silence on the matter. There are a lot of people, influencers, creators, podcasters, YouTubers, big video game outlets, who say we're categorically not going to cover or talk about this game. To be fair, most of the major outlets do. It is their job, and so they do, often with some kind of disclaimer. But many people do not. It seems that this hype train that Sony is trying to garner, and Warner Brothers, of course, which is the publisher of this game, is trying to garner, seems to be stalled at the station. And the reason <laughs> for that is the stance of Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling on the matter of feminist discourse and especially trans identity. So we want to go through matters in a, let's say, relatively structured way, <laughs> if we yeah. can. And that would mean that we first want to give you a little bit of context and our stance on the deba debate revolving around J.K. Rowling. We're then going to look into Hogwarts Legacy specifically. And ultimately, we're going to try and answer the question whether this game ought to be shunned or even to be boycotted. Starting off, J.K. Rowling. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Let's go back to June 5th, 2020. A day where the perspective that people had on Harry Potter and the person that wrote it changed significantly because J.K. Rowling retweeted an article by the charity Devex, which was titled as follows. Opinion. Creating a more equal post-COVID-19 world for people who menstruate, end quote. That is the title of this article. We're not going to talk about the content of this article, but what J.K. Rowling really commented on was this phrase, for people who menstruate. Why doesn't this article just say women? Specifically, J.K. Rowling commented, quote, people who menstruate... I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out. Wumben? Wimpunt? Woomud? <laughs> End quote. 
So she basically comes in with a rather sarcastic stance and pointing out that we ought not to abolish the idea of a woman and what a woman is. And then obviously she got some she got some responses, some replies, and over the next couple of days there were a whole lot of debates. There's one tweet that is often quoted, and I think that's quite indicative of what the stance was, because she then elaborated saying, I'm going to read out this, this tweet, quote, If sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth. End quote. So that's kind of the tweet that a lot of people got hung up on, I think. And I think it, it shouldn't be understated how weird and out of left field this was. Because <laughs> it, if you read those tweets and you're familiar with uh, the trans discourse, specifically the the turf discourse which is trans exclusionary radical feminists people who think that trans women are not women and that they're invading women's spaces it's a it's a hateful kind of rhetoric that they use these tweets kind of raised alarms because it's why is she talking like this that that sounds like something that these turf people would say and so that's what kind of kicked off this crazy discourse about where does she stand? Can what is she thinking? What you know, and and so all of those tweets were dissected and and looked at. I mean, they're still being looked at. We're looking at them now. <laughs> and yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, but why is it you just said the turf stance, the trans exclusionary radical feminist stance, is that is hateful? Why is that hateful? Can you explain that? Yes. Yeah, so, and, and I'm, I should preface all of this. I'm by no means an expert, right? Um, but from what I've gleaned from the discourse online and I've, I've, I think I've followed it since this happened. Anytime something comes up, there's people on YouTube, uh, both trans people and cis people who talk about this quite a lot. It, my understanding is that, so a turf believes that a trans woman is not a woman and therefore uh, that that stance in and of itself is transphobic because if somebody is saying i am a woman the stance should be so you are right that's that's your identity but turfs kind of take it in a in a hateful direction basically by saying that trans women are men who are trying to invade women's spaces either benignly or maliciously in worse cases. So it's this very prickly subject where they, first of all, come at, a, come at it from a stance that trans women are not women, which is not true by all accounts. And it just kind of spirals from there. So to hear these sort of talking points from J.K. Rowling, somebody who, based on her work, seemed to be very inclusive and you know, loving and, and open-minded this, like I said, it just set, it just rose a lot of alarms for people because all of a sudden she's using this kind of dog whistly, hateful rhetoric pointing towards these turf ideologies, which was frustrating and scary for a lot of people. I must say, I struggle with this kind of utterance 
of trans women are women. Mm. I'll admit that. I struggle with that uh, for different reasons than J.K. Rowling does, I suppose. Mm. The reason that I have why, why I struggle with that, like I get that it's a phrase and I, uh, I get that it's also an important thing to send a message. I, I do think that there is an ontological distinction between what we consider to be a woman and a trans woman. And I do think, now please don't hate me. <laughs> I do think that that distinction is an important one because it allows us to not only do what J.K. Rowling is insisting on, which is protecting women, but it also allows us to understand the specifics and the marginalization of trans people. Because if trans women were women in every way that matters, then that would, to me, say, okay, so there are no specific issues that we need to address revolving around the idea of being trans. So I do think it's good to, for, the, for the empowerment of trans identities to maintain this distinction. However, and this is obviously where things get a little bit more intricate, the question is, should, what, kind of, what kind of significance should that ontological distinction have in the way that people are, you know, uh, fairly treated in the way that they have rights and access to spaces? That's, I think, what actually matters. I absolutely take your point because I think that, and I think that uh, trans people would, ag would agree with this point, at least to the point where you don't want to run into the erasure of trans issues, which from my understanding, I mean, that's why we say, that's why we make the distinction between someone who is trans and someone who is cisgendered, right? Someone who is, comfor who is comfortable in the gender that they were assigned at birth. That's why that distinction exists. I think that the, the risk that we run when we, when we talk in these, when we use this rhetoric that JK Rowling was using is that you run into the, the turf position, which is not only are, uh, we're not talking about the distinction between trans women and cis women. We are saying that trans women are not women. They are in fact men. And that is a, that's where the, the, <clears throat> the hateful portion of it comes into it. That is absolutely wild. These claims that come up within the domain of J.K. Rowling from this discursive angle, they are, they, they go into completely into absurd degrees. I uh, engaged with this debate quite a bit, of course. I um, am very much involved in the matter of gender studies as well. And I do know that the question of to which degree do physical bodies, to which degree does sex, right, the biological sex, matter, mm. that is something that has been discussed in gender discourse for decades, right? Yes. This is something yeah. that, I mean, even Judith Butler, I'm going to quote her later on a little bit more, but uh, Judith Butler is a, a very, she was very influential in popularizing the idea that sex and gender are two different things and that gender is like a social identity. However, she also said in her book, Gender Trouble in, the in 1990, I believe, that we do not have any access to an ontological, biological sex, but all our perspectives on the matter of sex are already gendered. Judith Butler is a radical constructivist, thus arguing that there is no way to possibly ascertain an objective reality that is not already part of our gender construction. Right. 
so th this is a debate that's been going on in gender discourse for quite a while, which is why at first I was a little bit taken aback when uh, when J.K. Rowling was uh, so he, uh, was debated with such uh, uh, <laughs> yeah such passion. I would say yeah, she came out hot. She yeah. came out hot. Yeah, yeah, she hit the ground yeah. running. <laughs> Just gave, gave gave everybody whiplash. It was like, <clears throat> wait a minute, wait a minute. What what? Yeah, and I thought like this is these are conversations that are being held in a much more nuanced and differentiated way within gender discourse already. Yeah. And now J.K. Rowling just she comes in with a hammer. And <laughs> this is very clear when she says something like in the tweet that we read out before, if sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. Yes, of course, you could say, well, if sex is not real, then technically you can't have a same-sex attraction. Thus, you cannot argue in favor of, let's say, people that identify or that are uh, homosexual or that are lesbian, gay, you know? And that would obviously be a shame. However, what J.K. Rowling completely conflates, and this is something I would really like to stress, J.K. Rowling says, if sex isn't real... I don't think I've ever heard anyone argue that sex is not real. No. I've heard people argue that it's a construction. That's the radical constructivist view is sex is a gendered construction. And a construction is very much real. It's not something that's just a hallucination or that's just random. Uh, Judith Butler, again, stressed this uh, by writing a book titled Bodies That Matter, a mm. super intriguing read by pointing out the limitations of, you know, let's say a completely fluid gender performance. And I do think we must understand if we say something is a construction, that doesn't mean it's not real. They go to, and I, when I say they, I mean people with, with turf ideologies or uh, transphobic ideologies, they go to these extreme places from the start where they, that's why that tweet was so jarring because to see if sex isn't real, exactly as you said, Stefan, no one's saying that. <laughs> no, no one is, no, no one is one. saying that. Yeah. No, we're, we're saying that we need to take a, take a look at the socially constructed aspect of, of these things and how that can, that can be different, you know, depending on who you are and where you are and, and uh, how you, come to be so it was just immediately strange to see these words coming from it, it, i mean not just jk rowling it, it would be if anybody said this out of the blue you'd say oh well okay you're showing me your true colors i suppose <laughs> yeah you want to know what the strangest thing is the, the weirdest mm. argument in all of this you mentioned before that the this kind of turf position often includes uh the illusion of uh i'm using quotation marks here of uh, men who basically pretend to be women entering yeah. female safe spaces and being a danger to women. This is an absolutely ludicrous argument uh, for many reasons. The most important for me is that if we think of, let's say we think of a, a person, biological sex male, right? The assigned sex at birth male, who, let's say... Uh, gets a kick out of putting on women's clothes. Mm. Uh, then that person has a kink and and we're not in the in the business of kink shaming so you know no. <laughs> do whatever you want, right? <laughs> yeah. But that is not a trans person. <laughs> that's that's usually not what we mean when we talk about trans identities. Right. And when someone when someone dresses up as a woman to enter let's say a female dressing room, a dressing room for women. 
to then harass or molest women, then that person is is a sex offender, honestly. Yes, first and, and foremost, I would say. Exactly, first and foremost, yeah. a sex offender. And do you see what's happening there is that I saw this happening a lot with J.K. Rowling and with the things she's been retweeting and commenting on, this idea of uh, the danger of women's safe, female safe spaces being invaded how it shifts the conversation. At one moment, we're talking about trans people and trans rights, trans identities, and suddenly the conversation has shifted and we're talking about sex offenders. And these are not the same yeah. thing. This is, I think, where the actual offense lies and where a lot of this intuit intuitive anger comes from. It's because yes. you implicitly equate trans people with uh, people who either have a kink or people with uh, people who are sex offenders or who threaten women and this is just neither empirically nor logically in any way re uh, reasonable to assume and i should say too that this is it's a tale as old as time right this isn't new with with transphobia because this is a tactic used by homophobes as well right conflating con conflating gay or lesbian people with sex offenders who are only out who are only out to uh indulge in some kind of heinous proclivity right and that's absolutely not the case and you can see it happening with this kind of language for trans people too so it's very important when when a tweet like this comes out or a statement like this comes out and you find that they are people like jk rowling are are skipping points of an argument or taking things for granted or making these conflations as you said stuff on they can be very dangerous and very hurtful and that's yeah. that's why it's important to really see what are you really saying here? What is what, Where are you coming from with your position? And I would say she's coming from a position of trans-exclusionary radical feminism and transphobia. Yeah. The transphobia, for everyone who might struggle to understand this, the transphobia that I found very easy to identify is deliberately conflating sex offenders and trans identities. That yeah. is not the same thing. It's not the same conversation to have. I want to say that for everyone who has been, uh, you know, sexually harassed in a dressing room in the, in such a way, there are cases where this happens before anyone says like, yeah, but but it does happen. Fair enough. It does happen. It's a relatively rare crime. Not, mm. not, not uh, obviously sexual harassment is not rare, but it is rare that someone... That someone dresses up as right. a woman and, and goes into a women's dressing room to harass people. That's rel statistically relatively rare. It's terrible if that happens. And we do need to fight every in every way we can sexual harassment on all fronts as much as we can. But it's not concerning the matter of trans rights and uh, trans identities. Those are two different conversations to be had. And I think understanding that and calling that out is one of the strongest arguments in my mind um, to identify where the issue is with uh, J.K. Rowling's statements. Of course, this escalated very quickly, a whole lot, long uh, Twitter conversations, debates, and I found that two terrible things happened over time. One is J.K. Rowling became exceedingly entrenched in her stance, in, let's say, arguing, seemingly arguing in favor of protecting women, which is, as you say, uh, then kind of 
modified into a trans-exclusionary argumentation. Also, so entrenched in this matter of transitioning and basically saying, like, trans when you, when you go through J.K. Rowling's timeline, which I have done throughout the last couple of days in preparation yeah. of this episode. What a, a wild ride. <laughs> what a wild ride. I mean, I don't want to say, like, she also posts really good and really important things. I like that. I value when people are, you know, when famous people are politically engaged as well. But I want to say, aside from such posts like, you know, Freedom for Ukraine and, and things like that, a whole lot of things that she posts are all about how dangerous transitioning is. And this is a big problem because, yeah, uh, transitioning can be a problem, just like it does happen that people dress up as, that men dress up as, as women and then try to harass them in a dressing room. These are things that do happen, but realistically, we have to say, if we look at the whole picture, then J.K. Rowling is basically giving an, a super one-sided perspective, only hammering down on these negative points. And that's what makes it so dangerous because she is, Basically, she's so actively campaigning with almost to almost an obsessive degree. Yeah, I was just shocked when I read through this. I thought, like, what? I think that's the same sensation that many people had when this all started. You think, like, what are you doing? It's like just just look at the other side a little bit and and get an understanding of the whole picture. You know, one thing it's pertinent to mention while we're talking about J.K. Rowling and these ideas is that she wrote a book called The Troubled Blood which was under her pseudonym, Robert Galbraith. And you mentioned, of course, that the slippery slope argument of these TERFs and the trans-exclusionary radical feminists is that they equate trans women to sex offenders. And that is what this book is about. It's about a serial killer who, I mean, basically, I think, cross-dresses and enters women's restrooms or women's spaces and kills them and violates them. So she, she's been thinking about this for a while. Yeah. And I think as far as I know, she argued that she went down this rabbit hole of quote unquote researching the matter of trans identities with, in the context of preparing for that book, right? That was the, the according to her, that was the kickoff point for looking into this matter and getting engaged with this matter. It's interesting that she writes that book without... Uh, in the context of the discussion that we're having, you know, it's uh, yeah. it's just a, a little bit strange. And what's even stranger is I stumbled upon the, the origin of this name because the question is, of course, why the pseudonym Robert Galbraith? And I went to the website robertgalbraith.com, which is uh, the, this uh, pseudonym website where J.K. Rowling has also a Q&A. And uh, she has a short section here where she elaborates on why the name Robert Galbraith. And she essentially says, quote, I chose Robert because it's one of my favorite men's names, because Robert F. Kennedy is my hero, and because, mercifully, I hadn't used it for any of the characters in the Potter series or the casual vacancy. Galbraith came about for a slightly odd reason. When I was a child, I really wanted to be called Ella Galbraith. And I have no idea why. I don't even know how I knew the surname existed because I can't remember ever meeting anyone with it. End quote. She 
continues on here to explain her intrigue in this name of Galbraith. She also mentions further below, quote, Odder still, there was a well-known economist called J.K. Galbraith, something I only remembered by the time it was far too late. I was completely paranoid that people might take this as a clue and land at my real identity, but thankfully nobody was looking that deeply at the author's name, end quote. However, it also seems that J.K. Rowling either has not looked too deeply into the author's name, or that there is some intention in the fact that the name Robert Galbraith does exist and is connotated uh, with uh, psychiatry, with American psychiatry, and also with gay conversion therapy. We're talking here, if you want to look this up, we can link the Wikipedia article for a certain Robert Galbraith Heath, who, as the Wikipedia article says, quote, During the course of his experiments in deep brain stimulation, Heath experimented with gay conversion therapy and claimed to have successfully converted a homosexual patient, labeled in his paper as patient B-19. The patient who had been arrested for marijuana possession was implanted with electrodes into a septal region and many other parts of his brain. The septal electrodes were then stimulated while he was shown heterosexual pornographic material. The patient was later encouraged to have intercourse with a sex worker recruited for the study. As a result, Heath claimed the patient was successfully converted to heterosexuality. End quote. To be fair, in the 1950s, but this person is called Robert Galbraith Heath. And it's just, is that a coincidence or has J.K. Rowling not sincerely not Googled that name because that's not a recent thing? Uh, right. Now, Stefan, if, if, if you or I were to pen a, a novel that was about uh, a kind of uh, serial killer who takes on a gender identity that is not their own to enact horrible things. I don't know. You might do a little research about the pseudonym that you're taking on. That is, you can attest to this. You saw it happen. I lost my mind when you told me that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that, is, that is unreal. I can't believe that that's so specific and such a particular name. I don't know if Galbraith is particularly common in, in the UK, but that, I, I, come on. <laughs> we, we can't know whether this is something that is intentional and where J.K. Rowling is basically, it's just part of like uh, constructing some kind of weird narrative around this entire idea of <laughs> transphobia and, you know, being, uh, and also in this can, case, very homophobic. Yeah. However, it might also be that maybe she just really didn't look into it and didn't do proper research. In either case, really, if you pick such a pseudonym, such a specific name, as you said, like Robert Galbraith, yeah. you want to Google it, and it's not hard. If you Google Robert Galbraith, this is something that pops up relatively, like, let's say, on the first three pages, for sure, of Google. And <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I find it befuddling, and I find that this entire conversation revolving around J.K. Rowling, the deeper you get into this, the more you can't help to realize how problematic it actually is, the way she's entrenching in this doubling down and, and 
seems to be completely resistant to any kind of argumentation. This is not a case of someone who misunderstood a, pos a position or was ill-informed or uneducated on something. I can promise you, J.K. Rowling has been educated on this six ways to Sunday. She knows what she's talking about at this point. So this is something where she is deeply, deeply rooted to this position. And that puts a kind of pall over her work. Because now you know where it's coming from. It's not a misunderstanding. This is how she feels. <laughs> yeah. It's not like the information is not available. It's not like people have not tried to convince billions her. Billions of times. <laughs> yes, billions of times. And it's been a futile endeavor. And the thing is, though, on the other hand, I do want to say, we mentioned already, like when it comes to the death of the author, when it comes to hate, uh, there's also a whole another conversation on the terrible things that J.K. Rowling has also been confronted with in the context of this. Like coming from, I'm not talking about the arguments and even if you want to argue fiercely, that's perfectly fine. But of course, she has also faced a whole lot of hate, uh, like actual hate and threats of violence, death threats. This is in absolutely no way acceptable. One thing that I found really shocking throughout these last few weeks as I've been engaging with this and reading up on the entire thing is that it seems to be insulting J.K. Rowling as a person mm. seems to have become kind of a self-evident thing. I listened to a podcast where exactly the question that we uh, are discussing right now has also been discussed. It was the kind of funny games cast, by the way. I don't usually listen to that one, but I found it found the topic interesting. And there... Uh, one of the hosts mentioned that, yeah, J.K. Rowling is a piece of shit on Twitter. Mm. In other ways, on, on Reddit, I of course, various things happen on Reddit, but I found a whole subreddit where people were talking about, you know, the question of a uh, threat, where people were talking about Hogwarts legacy, and where J.K. Rowling was only called, quote, that bitch, end quote, by everyone. Now, this is a problem. We can't dehumanize J.K. Rowling, no matter how disagreeable, offensive, or terrible we would find her stance. Attack the argument, not the person. Don't do this ad hominem fallacy. It will only escalate the debate further. And a through line of our, of our podcast is that we, we, can, we condemn a lot of these arguments and we don't we don't like the kind of rabbit holes that we have to go down when we're explaining things like this. But you said in our very first episode, an, a really good way to have the person you're arguing against sink their talons into whatever they're stuck to is to make them into a villain. And I would say that she is certainly committing villainous acts, but she's still a person and doesn't deserve violent death threats for this. I do understand where it's coming from, the frustration and the feeling of betrayal that a lot of people have or the uh, shaking your head at her digging her claws into this, but violence is just not any answer to any issue. Exactly. Instead, if it's okay, I would like to round off this particular conversation on the J.K. Rowling matter by some uh, really inspiring words that I found, again, written by Judith Butler in an interview with The Guardian. This is just 
uh, from 2021. Mm. And Judith Butler spoke about exactly this matter of um, trans-exclusionary radical feminism and uh, uh, trans rights. And Judith Butler said, quote, Politically securing greater freedoms for women requires that we rethink the category of women to include those new possibilities. The historical meaning of gender can change as its norms are reenacted, refused, or recreated. So we should not be surprised or opposed when the category of women expands to include trans women. And since we are also in the business of imagining alternate futures of masculinity, we should be prepared, and even joyous, to see what trans men are doing with the category of men. End quote. This is Judith Butler, and I must say, I, I, very much disagree, I very much agree with this, and I think that while I said at the beginning it's it's might be for the sake of identity politics important to maintain the understanding of specific trans issues, it does not mean that we can't widen the concept of what a woman is to include trans women. Absolutely. I think, <laughs> leave it to Judith Butler, I think, to put a cap on that conversation. Yes. So let's move on and talk about what we actually came here to talk about, which is Hogwarts legacy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's the background. <laughs> so that's the background. An important one, though, because I thought it's just good to give this conversation a little bit of time. Uh, but we're going to get into the actual meat of Hogwarts legacy now, because in September 2020, Warner Brothers Interactive announced a game that had already been leaked years prior, Hogwarts Legacy. It's developed by Avalanche Software, a studio that uh, mostly made Disney licensed games. I found that they made such things like Disney Infinity. They made a couple of Cars games. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure what that actually says about the quality to be expected from Hogwarts Legacy. Uh, yeah, that's a, a pin in it for another time. <laughs> <laughs> They're definitely going into a whole new direction. And <laughs> they release this game under the framework of Portkey Games. That is the label that encompasses uh, the Wizarding World license. So that's a license that J.K. Rowling owns. And it's kind of the law, the entire universe of everything that happens with uh, Harry Potter and uh, the Fantastic Beasts and so on and so forth, right? And... The thing is, they had quite some issues aside from what we've already debated. For example, um, there was one developer as part of Hogwarts Legacy. Troy Leavitt is his name. Mm. He left the studio in February 2021 because he posted some videos on his private YouTube channel that were politically provocative. And... I want to say this, it's, uh, I reported on that matter back then at a different podcast. And I here am also a bit startled when people say that, yeah, he's a Nazi um, or he's like an alt-right dude. Mm. Um, he is conservative, certainly, and his views can be disagreed with. And I think, for the most part, I disagreed with almost everything that he said. I watched a couple of his YouTube videos. Not all of them back in the day, but a couple. But I didn't find anything in there that I would deem to be hateful or to be particularly racist. Um, I disagree with it. 
right? I don't want to endorse his YouTube channel. <laughs> sure. But he's not a Nazi. So this is one issue that basically happens that already drew some controversy uh, on this matter. And over time, of course, people started to, to debate the matter of uh, trans identities caused by J.K. Rowling's uh, Twitter ramblings, I'm going to call them. <laughs> <laughs> Very charitable of you, yeah. <laughs> when information was leaked by Jason Schreier, sorry, it was not leaked by Jason Schreier, but reported on by Jason Schreier from people at the mm. studio, uh, who said in a Bloomberg article, quote, when players start up the game, they will be able to create a character that has a masculine or feminine voice, no matter what their body looks like, according to people familiar with the game's development. Players will then get to select one of two options, witch or wizard that will determine the dorm they get placed in at the magical school of Hogwarts and how they are addressed by other characters in the game, end quote. So the idea is that Hogwarts Legacy might, this is a rumor, I haven't got a confirmation for that. I reached out to Warner Brothers and I asked them, <laughs> mm. I said like, is this real? We'd like to really know because we're doing a podcast discussing this matter and it would kind of be important for our position. <laughs> yeah. I have not heard back. No response. <laughs> much much to my surprise, they have not <laughs> right. responded to my email. But yeah, we tried. We've, we have to treat it as a rumor for now, if a fairly likely one at that, that you may be able to create a trans character in Hogwarts Legacy. Presumably as a response to uh, the entire discourse revolving around J.K. Rowling. This is this is where the the gray area comes into it, right? Because I think that would be something that would be certainly good to include this sort of trans option for creating your character. But I can already hear the online discourse saying, "Well, that's just you trying to uh, cover yourself here, you know, yeah, to kind of get some <laughs> good boy and girl points from doing the right thing." And I don't know. It's it seems like you're kind of in a position where you can't really win. Although I do think it's a nice gesture. <laughs> I do think that's a, it is probably a corporate attempt to appease people who might be concerned about Hogwarts legacy because yeah, it is, it is in fact the case that if you purchase Hogwarts legacy, then a certain, um, that will be a certain amount of money going to JK Rowling. We don't know what the exact deal is. It might be that she has already been paid or it might be that she gets paid regardless. I assume she probably does. I, I assume that you basically rent out your, or you purchase a license, basically, or make a license agreement and that J.K. Rowling gets paid anyway. But she might get, there might be some kind of bonus involved when the game sells extra well or something like that. We don't know about these details. But you will definitely be, to a certain degree, no matter how small, also aiding J.K. Rowling. And she might then, as she does, uh, also double down on her stance on campaigning against transitioning and fear-mongering revolving around this idea of transitioning, which is a proper issue. Again, the gray area here is like saying, well, she she already has more money than the queen, Right. And so you think, <laughs> and she does. Yeah. And how, how much of this is really affecting her daily activity on Twitter? And you think, well, 
maybe not that much, but I do think it's a, it's a principle for a lot of people that we, we don't have a lot of options when it comes to affecting change. But one of the biggest options we have is deciding where our wallet goes. And it is definitely impactful if there's a big enough boycott on this game that maybe a message gets through to her or at the very least further messages don't get out from her. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most likely scenario, if it happens, let's say, hypothetically speaking, a lot of people were to say, I'm not going to play this game. I'm going to, let's say there's a systematic boycott and uh, not mm. a single copy gets sold, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very unlikely to happen, but hypothetically sure. speaking, worst case scenario yeah. for the developers and publishers, not yeah. a single copy gets sold. Uh, that would probably, that might mean that the Harry Potter license as such basically becomes a complete red flag. That would mean that we would probably not see any more uh, investments into at least the attempt to make video games about Harry Potter. We'll see Fantastic Beast films and so on. Uh, people uh, continue making Harry Potter stuff and funny apps and so on. <laughs> but it might be that it, they just like, whoa, okay, on this level of you know video game culture... Uh, Gamers are woke. <laughs> yeah. Pump the brakes. We got woke gamers. <laughs> Pump the brakes. Hold all developments. <laughs> and it's also, I must say, it's also a very emotional matter. Uh, I found, we asked, obviously, on social media for input from you to see what your perspectives are. Antu Nguyen commented and said, yes, we should shun Hogwarts Legacy, not planning on playing it. Quote, I will admit that it looks exactly what I've been wanting in a Harry Potter game, and it would have made kid me probably very happy. But alas, Harry Potter is not important to me anymore. Also, thanks to the author. End quote. So I think apart from a rational consideration of the harms and benefits, let's say the utilitarian calculus, it's also just a matter of emotion. So many people enjoyed Harry Potter and then came to realize that the person that basically creatively authored this entire world has some worldviews that they find highly problematic. It's a deep disappointment that you, that you fall into. And then you look at your bookshelf and you see like Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, J.K. Rowling, and you feel immediately reminded... Oh yeah, uh, uh, you know, don't transition, and uh, you know, this kind of fear mongering. And you might not, you might intuitively just not want to engage with that, you know. Well, I think that's why the death of the author argument is so is so worth discussing in this case because I remember back when back in 2020 when this originally started, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm just remembering now that I saw this YouTube video, so I don't remember who created it, but the sentiment was really beautiful in it, which was. It was a long video kind of going through all of this discourse. And at the end of it, this guy had said that, you know, Harry Potter doesn't belong to her anymore. It's, it's ours at this point. And that's a sentiment that I share with all art. Once it's out in the world, if the artist is still around, it's interesting to get their take on things from time to time. Um, quick sidebar to plug David Lynch in our ongoing celebration of David Lynch. Fix your hearts or die, everybody. Um, he says... That once an idea is out there, it's up to everyone. It's a beautiful idea. It belongs to everyone, right? 
And I think that it's important to consider death of the author as a framework because there are plenty of people who Harry Potter is very important to, and they are at odds with this position that J.K. Rowling has taken. And so, like Antu had said, it's not important to her anymore. It's kind of, it's, it's had her attention and now that's gone. But there are plenty of people who are struggling with, I love Harry Potter, I love the characters, I love the world. And I, it's tainted, it's tainted by J.K. Rowling, right? Yeah. Yeah. But this is also, but legally she does own it. Like, oh yeah. Uh, the, the argument of death of the author is largely a theoretical one because yes. effectively, effectively that's hers. It's literally her belonging. <laughs> Still, yeah, to this day. I mean, uh, that's the problem, right? You can easily say death of the author was Shakespeare because he's not around and he doesn't own anything anymore. But yeah. J.K. Rowling is still, she's tweeting every day. So if, why? if you, yeah. <laughs> you just think, you just think why, why not let trans people to have the conversation, you know? Why, yeah. why, what, what do you, <laughs> this is, this is the, this is where we both break down and we get rid of all of the, the debate terminology and we're like, what are you doing? <laughs> 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 but maybe to bring it back to exactly that argument of the death of yeah, the author, yeah. <laughs> Der Grigat went to our Twitter account, uh, sorry, our Instagram account, and said the following, referring to Roland Barthes' uh, death of the author, it is not important anymore what J.K. Rowling, Rowling's intentions were while creating the Wizarding World. What each individual reader interprets is much more important Many people have found a safe space behind the walls of the beloved castle of Hogwarts. Considering that Rowling is not involved in the production of Hogwarts' legacy, it would be unfair to shun the game and the ideas of the whole creative team behind it just because J.K. Rowling made some questionable statements. End quote. The, the real sticking point, and I think why my position hasn't really changed, is because there is still that financial tie to her. So regardless of her involvement, she is benefiting from this, right? But that's a very good argument right there that it's it's out of her hands. This, especially Hogwarts Legacy, which is created by a whole team of people that are not her. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. By a whole team of people that are not her. And as we received in another comment by Dead Drop Podcast on Instagram, Quote, if the studio comes out with harassment claims, sure, that is, we oh, should sure. shun them. However, they've distanced themselves from J.K. Rowling pretty far. And if the community welcomes all, that would be an important thing, end quote. Mm. So, yes, in the sense of the death of the author argument, I would, I would add to that. While she legally owns the Wizarding World and while she makes money on it, uh, she's so rich. We said several times, money's meaningless, basically, <laughs> at that scale. Yes. It's, it's, our, like, it's our catchphrase. <laughs> yeah, studying pixels, money is meaningless. Money is meaningless. <laughs> Please well, donate to Studying Pixels Plus. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on to whom it is meaningless. Yes, Those people yeah, that yeah. have a lot of it. And that's the thing. J.K. Rowling has so much money that for her, it is completely immaterial how this game does. And whether she makes money from that particular license contract or not, which she surely will anyway, mm -hmm. it doesn't make any difference, none, or a very marginal difference that I would argue is negligible, considering that on the other hand, it is an opportunity to show to her and to the world that 
a, a game or a fiction in the context of the wizarding world of the Harry Potter lore is possible that specifically includes trans identities and does not avoid speaking about them or is weird about them. We have to see how it's implemented, but mm. the promise is there. The potential is there. And wouldn't that be beautiful? To Basically, it would almost be a way to spite the original author by yeah. saying, look, we've created this and it's a much more inclusive and engaging fiction because we don't deliberately exclude people from it. That's a good segue into my closing thoughts, maybe, because that I do think that we should we should not shun this game. I will not personally be playing it uh, for a number of reasons. Chief among them, I don't know that I'm that interested in yeah. Harry Potter. I think I, I maybe share Antu's, uh it's not that important to me anymore <laughs> kind of feeling. Um, I, so I'm not going to be playing it. I'm not going to be buying it, but I don't think that we should shun it because this is created by an entire team of people who are working very hard on it. They're putting their labor into it. And what's uplifting to me about this is exactly as you said, this may be a first step in the direction of reclaiming this piece of art for people that are not JK Rowling. So it's so important to so many people. Maybe if we take those ideas that are important to all of those people, like being inclusive with trans people that this will start to harry potter will start to move away from jk rowling and her kind of stain on it at least in a very small way and that to me is a little bit uplifting so i don't think we should shun it i just won't be engaging with it yeah i agree i think i would i'm gonna wait to see what the what the reviews say uh, to see whether i'm gonna play this i think so far it seemed really cool. And I'm going to be honest, just a couple of weeks ago, I rewatched the Harry Potter films. You mm -hmm. know, uh, maybe I'm just a cold-hearted person. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, the thing is, the Harry Potter fiction, if you are... Well, to be fair, I am in a privileged position because I'm not directly affected by what J.K. Rowling is saying. I'm only affected by extension because I care... And because I can't stand when people are, you know, just completely distorting arguments or are not at all reasonable in the way they argue. Uh, but I'm I'm privileged. I belong to a very privileged group in the society. And that's why I maybe it's arrogant to say I can allow myself to engage with this. But on the other hand, I want to stress that the reason why I don't have a problem with rewatching Harry Potter films is because because I love that world and because there is so much in there of virtue and value, it's also a decisively anti-fascist fiction, I might say. There are problems oh, yeah. with Harry Potter. There are problems that also are discussed in the case of Hogwarts Legacy, such as anti-Semitic stereotypes in the case of the goblins that maintain the banks. Uh, you know, that's an a issue. A whole other podcast. Yeah. That's a whole other <laughs> podcast. But to be fair, this is something that does matter, and it's something that we need to discuss, ideally when the game comes out. And it's also something that is very predominant in fantasy. Like, if that is the case, then cancel, uh, cancel J.R.R. Tolkien as fast as you possibly can. <laughs> because that thing, <laughs> yeah. that world is infused with racism. 
Yeah. Uh, so Harry Potter does make. I think I like the anti-fascist ideology that uh, that is basically residing within it, and obviously the strong statements on the matters of friendship and compassion, dedication, and so on. There are a whole lot of virtues that I relate to, and that's why I like it. And that's why I might also play this game. I don't think we should shun it because it gives us the opportunity to create a fiction that is more inclusive and thus more enjoyable than what J.K. Rowling might originally have had in mind. Beautifully said. Then with that, we're going to end that conversation here. But of course, that doesn't mean that we've settled things. We're going to have no. to observe <laughs> how things will continue. And obviously, we're very curious to hear what you think of our debate, of the general debate. Please let us know what you think by going to our social media accounts and just, you know, tweeting out at us or going to studyingpixels.com slash contact where you can also shoot us a brief email. And while you do so, we're going to go ahead and do some side questing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. As you know in our side quests, we venture through the internet and bring you stories and articles that we find interesting and relevant. We also share our own impressions of games we are currently playing. And of course, you can find all the links that we reference in the show notes. Number one. E3 is dead. Long live E3. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as always, as it's been for many years yeah, now. Yes, although maybe more, uh, more seriously this time. Because, as... Of Rebecca Valentine tells us from IGN, uh, E3 2022 had been canceled in person, but the ESA came out, the group that puts the E3 together, and they said that there will not be a digital equivalent either. So E3 2022 is effectively canceled for this year. So, And now we're all thinking, mm. why? Well, <laughs> I think there's a number of reasons. Obviously, the pandemic contributes to it, uh, but I think reading reading kind of between the lines a little bit 
maybe this is a portent of things to come. So I'm just going to read very quickly. Uh, this is a quick statement in this article. The ESA had initially planned for an in-person E3 event this year after having no event in 2020 due to COVID-19 and a digital one in 2021. However, this was canceled in January with the ESA at the time unable to make a public statement on whether or not there would be a digital equivalent. According to sources speaking to IGN at the time, discussions around D3 had been fraught throughout the year, with third parties normally involved finding the ESA's ongoing silence regarding their plans frustrating. So, unclear. Obviously, the pandemic threw a wrench into big public events, but it also seems like there is some uh, disruption among the ranks with third parties and probably even the major developers, where they all, I mean, Nintendo, Sony, they all have their own showcases. And I, I do, you do kind of wonder between this and things like the game awards, what is E3 really doing? What is E3 doing? And of course, when it comes to being frustrated with not getting word from them on whether anything is going to happen and in what form, then we have to keep in mind that these are actually things that require a lot of preparation on the side of publishers and developers because often at such events like E3, these things are seen as milestones where, you know, certain steps in the development of a game have to be taken, where a vertical slice of the game has to be created or a demo has to be mm. available. And often the public response that then follows these announcements will influence the future of the development of that game. So for a studio it is very important that they know well in advance, ideally half a year in advance, I would say, yeah. whether an E3 is going to happen and when exactly so they know what to go towards. If you then think like, okay, now it's two months, and even if it were to happen now, we can't really show anything that we haven't shown before or that's not already slated for another uh, event, then you suddenly end up and you do an E3, but present what, you know? Right. And I think that, if I were if I were a representative from one of those companies, I would be pretty taken aback by the silence. That's a huge deal. I mean, a couple of months out at this point, as you say, a lot of prep work goes into these presentations. So it, it's it's as if I don't know a, a, to put it in an acad in academic terms, it's as if your professor assigns the final exam two days before it's due. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's just I I don't want to deal with this kind of hassle. So it's not happening this year, although. The ESA has shared an official statement talking about their plans for next year. So they do see, this isn't, as of now, this isn't a permanent cancellation of E3. They say, quote, we will devote all our energy and resources to delivering a revitalized physical and digital E3 experience next summer, meaning 2023. Whether enjoyed from the show floor or your favorite devices, the 2023 showcase will bring the community, media, and industry back together in an all-new format and interactive experience. We look forward to presenting E3 to fans around the world live from Los Angeles in 2023. Best of luck, lads. I don't know. <laughs> Best of luck. I, I don't know what that Best looks like, luck. but... As you already said, pretty much every major publisher has their own showcases, mm -hmm. and... I do see value in E3 because it is a problem when all of these different publishers, they basically are fragmented and separate into their own communities. Like in a state of play, Sony or PlayStation is communicating with people that are already fans of PlayStation. 
uh, whereas at an E3, you have the opportunity to speak kind of to the wider video game community. Mm. We need such places and such events that bring the video game community or video game culture as such together. I would sincerely appreciate if that would work. I don't know whether it will, considering that things, as you said, such as the Game Awards, the Game Awards, I feel, have in recent, in the last, let's say, two years at least, mm. largely replaced the function of E3. Because the Game Awards are, of course, an award show, but at the same time, at least to 50%, maybe even 60%, they are an announcement show of new games such as E3 always had been, right? Yeah, and I think if you're... I'm just thinking from an economic standpoint, or I suppose an economical standpoint, if I'm Mr. Microsoft or if I'm Mr. Sony and I say, well, do we really want to put in the effort and the money into putting together an E3 presentation if we're going to have our own presentation, plus we're going to get representation at the Game Awards? You know, it just seems like, why do we really, at this point, why do we need E3? In past years, as you said, it was a, a way to reach out to a broader audience, but I don't think I don't think a company like Nintendo or Sony or any of the big players really needs that at this point. Well, Nintendo is just like, let's make a 20-minute presentation about an <laughs> Animal Crossing DLC. <laughs> where where uh where Aonuma-san ap uh, apologizes for Breath of the Wild 2 again. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and shows a metroid logo there you go <laughs> <laughs> please be excited <laughs> oh. okay number two things are really shifting all new playstation plus launches in june with 700 plus games and more value than ever wow <laughs> this is by the way it's not a statement by me this was the title <laughs> of the of the pr press yeah. release by playstation fair, fair point to make <laughs> I would not say that. That is the writing by Jim Ryan. Uh, of course, as everyone knows, it's been no secret that PlayStation Plus has been lagging behind other subscription services such as Xbox Game Pass for quite a while now. Mm. Xbox has been super dedicated to making its Game Pass an absolute priority available on as many platforms as possible. Whereas PlayStation, it seems still to be tied to a rather conventional model of uh, basically um, putting high production value games at the, at the front of their business. Now, on March 29th, Sony announced its rework of PlayStation Plus. This had long since been rumored that they would make substantial changes. And so they have, uh, getting up the hopes of by, I think that was December last year, 48 million subscribers worldwide. The key idea is to integrate PlayStation Plus with PlayStation Now. PlayStation Now is the cloud streaming service where you can register and then you can cloud stream PS3, uh, like older games, classic games, up to PS4 games. From June this year onward, PlayStation Plus will be layered in three tiers. There's going to be an essential tier. That's the first one. There, you basically have no changes. This is identical to what you get at the moment when you have PlayStation Plus. So two monthly downloadable games, exclusive discounts, cloud storage for saved games, online multiplayer access, and all of that at 10 US dollars per month or 60 US dollars per year. Then there's PlayStation Plus Extra, which is the second tier. They say, quote, 
adds a catalogue of up to 400 of the most enjoyable PS4 and PS5 games, including blockbuster hits from our PlayStation Studios catalogue and third-party partners. Games in the extra tier are downloadable for play. This extra tier comes at a price upgrade of, I'm, I'm only going to say the annual, mm. the annual fee now, right? Of 100 US dollars. So the essential is 60, the extra is 100. And the third one is premium, which comes at 120 and includes another 340 games, mostly classic games, apparently. The ability to cloud stream, so to basically use what has previously been known as PlayStation Now, and some time-limited trials for new games, where you can just go onto the store and say, I would like to play Ghostwire Tokyo for half an hour before I decide whether I want to buy it or not. Mm. They say, to conclude this, uh, this story, quote, The new extra and premium tiers represent a major evolution for PlayStation Plus. With these tiers, our key focus is to ensure that the hundreds of games we offer will include the best quality content that sets us apart. At launch, we plan to include titles such as Death Stranding, God of War, Marvel Spider-Man, Marvel Spider-Man Miles Morales, Mortal Kombat 11, and Returnal. We're working closely with our imaginative developers from PlayStation Studios and third-party partners to include some of the best gaming experiences available with a library that will be regularly refreshed. More details to come on the games we'll have, we'll have on our new PlayStation Plus service. End quote. Now the question is, is this a good deal? Is it the right decision to rework PlayStation Plus in this particular way? Does that appeal to you, Dan? Oh, yeah. I think I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to try the premium service. Oh yeah. I think so. Because I'm, we, we always joke about how we're big Sony fanboys and I, I grew up playing a ton of PlayStation classic games and PlayStation two. So if those are available, I think that'll be a huge draw for someone like me. I'm also coming at it from the perspective of Game Pass does it right by keeping these games somewhere where you can have access to them because it's difficult to find certain games physically. Maybe you don't have the hardware, et cetera, et cetera. So I appreciate the work going into having a library of these games. That being said, it does seem kind of scarce. And I know that there's problems with uh, the PS3 streaming it seems like it's it's only available for streaming there's some issue there where yes. so sony doesn't understand its own hardware or something exactly yeah. that's that's i think the issue the, the ps3 they uh did this weird made this weird decision of going with a completely different processor unit and uh it basically just completely messed things up for generations to come so by now they they are like we can't we can't, can't emulate ps3 games we can only stream them great well, I mean, at least they're available in some <laughs> form, I suppose, but that seems yeah. silly. But I, I, am, I am definitely for this, and I think um, maybe, maybe I'll rethink it when we have a full list just to see what's available and what might be on the, in the future. But I think, genu generally speaking, $60 to $120 a year with access to that many games does seem appealing to me. It does seem appealing 
What I find curious, though, is that what they did not do mm. is copy the Xbox Game Pass model. Because one of mm -hmm. the strongest arguments in favor of the Xbox Game Pass is that if you subscribe to the ultimate Xbox Game Pass, then you get every single new uh, Xbox first party title immediately at launch free, basically. Included in your subscription. I always think it's not, it's not free, really. It's part of your subscription. Sony does not do that. And I thought about why <laughs> and I think <laughs> I think what Sony is trying to do here is the thing is Sony relies a lot more on exclusive titles than Xbox does. Xbox, of course, they've purchased a whole lot of studios now, so they've really boosted up their library. But Sony is still known for its exclusives for titles such as The Last of Us, uh, Uncharted, right, Returnal. Right. There's so many, uh, too many titles to name them all here, but. God of War, of course. Uh, that is an exclusive, right? Yes. Yeah, it yeah. is an exclusive. It is an exclusive. I think it's available on other platforms as well, uh, but always it's on, that happens it's on later. PC. But yeah, on it's, PC. I, yeah, it's a Sony title for sure. Just like Horizon and, and Spider-Man and so on. Yeah. Now, I think that that might actually be a smart decision. Because the thing is, if you say that all of these games, imagine all of these high-profile PlayStation exclusives, praised for their quality as they are, are released at no additional charge for people who have this, let's say, premium subscription of 120 US dollars a year. That is, that might not make economic sense because I think, as is most likely, people who have such a plus subscription and to play on PlayStation, they most they probably buy more than two of these exclusives at roughly the launch window a year. So it's really not financially viable. And it also kind of devalues these exclusives a little bit. Because that yeah. means if you have a thing, this is kind of the Apple mentality, right? Or you say, we, we do this thing, it's going to be really great. You have to purchase it. You have to buy an X you know you have to put some money into this you have to purchase it for 70 US dollars but then you'll get access to this fantastic thing that we ensured has a super high quality I think it's kind of also a matter of status I think so especially because those big titles that are Sony exclusives we don't get a dozen of those a year they're yeah they feel like big events so I think it's apt to compare it to an Apple unveiling because it is like this is the sony game this year you know get excited for it we're gonna have this whole hype train behind it so i agree with you and i think that price tag definitely is maybe a little jarring but it sounds like they're trying to implement enough games to make it worth your while yeah i think for me i might stay on essential mm. um for for now, because the thing is that the good thing about this is you can basically change tiers as far as we are aware on a monthly basis. It's like a Netflix thing, I suppose. Yeah. So for me, it's like I have so many games to play. I'm still playing Elden <laughs> Ring at the moment. And if you ask me in two months, I'll probably still be playing Elden Ring. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like uh, I'll, I'll stay on Essential. And then once I'm in the situation where I say, okay, now I really want to get into that library or maybe there's some really cool games, for example... I've never played. Can you believe that I've never played Metal Gear Solid? <laughs> uh, you, mm, 
Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would say I would say yes because <laughs> it's such an impenetrable game. So yeah, I I know what you're saying, but also yes, I believe that. <laughs> I, I but I love to. I'd love to. The, the only problem is there's no easy way to do that. You know, yeah. There's no easy way to play through all of the Metal Gear or at least all of the Metal Gear Solid games. So if that is part of such a such a tier, such a, let's say, premium tier or extra tier, then I might be able to say, okay, I'm going to subscribe to it for a couple of months to get that. Still, one more statement, just because I can't bear it anymore. <laughs> uh, cloud storage for saved games should not be part of a plus subscription. It no. should not. The thing is, with previous console generations, with PS3 and PS4 games, you could save those save games on a USB stick and basically copy it over in case you, for example, had to reset your console. You can get all these save games of games you're currently playing, copy it on a USB stick, and then put it back on the console once you've reset it or had to repair it. PS5 games, curiously, do not allow that. Not at all. There is, as far as I'm aware, no way you can back up your save files without entering a plus subscription. And while I understand that makes you a whole lot of money, it is not nice and exploitative. So <laughs> don't do that. You know, make it a free feature to have at least the option to back up all of your save games. That's not... Or at least give us the option to copy it on a USB drive. Yeah, at the very least. <laughs> it had <laughs> to nice. be said. <laughs> Number three... Yes, in uh, the continuing amazing year for video games, <laughs> I'm playing Ghostwire Tokyo right now, and I'm having so much fun with it. It is uh, the new game from Bethesda, and it's about ghosts <laughs> in Tokyo. Uh, don't say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> a misleading title. <laughs> I know, yeah. So the the plot from 10,000 Feet is that you play as a character named Akito and Akito is caught in the middle of a ghost invasion in Shibuya and he nearly dies, but he is possessed by a person who has recently died, who has these magical powers named KK. And so they work together to fight these ghosts and right the wrongs that are happening in this world uh, from the invaders that are coming in and trying to manipulate death and make uh, our world a living hell, basically. And I will say that the story is simple, but the characters are great. They're immediately engaging. You know exactly who they are from the start. Um, you get very close to them very quickly. And the gameplay is fun, although it is a bit repetitive. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of skill acquisition that you can use, but it's an open world in Shibuya, and there's a lot of collecting, and there's a lot of uh, same enemy types. So that does get repetitive. But I will say what is keeping me going is uh, without question how Tokyo looks in this game. Mm. You can walk through the greater part of Shibuya. It is so accurate in certain places. I found a street where I used to get ramen. 
And I was so excited. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I was about to ask that because you've been there, you yeah. know the place, and it, you felt like you were tr properly transported there. Yes, it's it's definitely like they take they take a f obviously they take liberties here and there, but it, sure. there are certain landmarks and streets. Like I can tell you, um, when you go to Shibuya Crossing, you'll immediately recognize Persona Five landmarks. You know, it's yes. it's very clear that they modeled this after the real place. Um, and it is so fun to explore. You have, you have a lot of freedom and it does, it's a little jarring going to it from Elden Ring because it has those kind of Ubisoft uh, open world hallmarks of finding places and opening up the map. But it's so fun to walk around and it's scary at times. It's surprising. So it's, it does feel a little bit worth it. So I'm about halfway through it right now. I can't wait to finish it. And I don't know that I'll get the platinum on it because it's a lot of collecting, but mm. um, I definitely have been enjoying the time I've sunk into it. It might be that the collecting and the gameplay repetition, that's what I've heard so far, mm -hmm. that they kind of drain you over time. But I think the big question uh, that's, is probably going to be the uh, the decisive matter on whether someone which should jump into Ghostwire Tokyo is how intrigued are you into, you know, basically experiencing the atmosphere of Shibuya? It's great. And there's a lot of really creepy imagery. I will say that what's not repetitive, and actually this is a testament to the game because a lot of these Assassin's Creed type open world games, the side quests are, it's just generic and they, you have to just check a box. Maybe there's a, a mission where you follow somebody or a mission where you collect something. All the side missions in Ghostwire Tokyo are unique and interesting and a really great look into Yude and yokai lore, you know, ghosts and demons. It, that's a lot of fun with it. So as repetitive as the collecting is, the actual story content is really rich. Now, I've got a question. Just one single thing that I saw from Ghostwire Tokyo mm. is a sequence in which you do a side quest for a ghost that is on a public toilet and they don't have <laughs> toilet paper. Yeah. Uh, now, I remember I did a lengthy side quest in Yakuza where the exact same thing happened. Is that something? Is that an actual issue that so many games draw from that? Is that like a, a I, big social issue or something? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I guess it's shorthand for empathy. I don't know. <laughs> but but I, I, thought, I had the exact same thought because I did that the other day and I thought, is this guy going to ask me for 20 more tissues as no. I walk around <laughs> Shibuya? <laughs> I thought maybe there's some kind of like, it's a cultural thing that it's like a big fear or something that you're stuck on a public toilet with no, I mean, it is a fear. <laughs> it it's is terrible. a fear, yeah. yeah. It is terrible all around the, the world, but I thought it was maybe a specific thing like that constantly happens to people in Tokyo or something. <laughs> Not that I know <laughs> of, although I wouldn't be too surprised. I, I will say, the last thing I'll say about it is um, as repetitive as the enemy types are, the first time you see them is always really effective. If you, when you see a new one, uh, like there's the the lady with the red umbrella, um, whose yokai name I'm forgetting right now, but it's really effectively creepy. And you know, eventually she shows up as just another enemy. But the first time you see them as the big bad, it's really cool. So it does a lot of things right. It's it's just a little monotonous, but uh, I'm enjoying it very much. I'm looking forward to jump into it once mm. I have completed my never-ending journey in Elden Ring. <laughs> and 
my never-ending journey in Horizon Zero Horizon. Home. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, excuse me, Horizon Forbidden West. <laughs> it's the year of... Uh, we're. It's a good problem to have this year. I think we're spoiled with good games so far. Um, it's fine. It's so cold here at the moment. It's actually... Can you imagine the first... The April 1st, uh, I wake up in the morning, it's like minus two degrees. <laughs> Celsius, naturally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's snow outside my window right now. Yep. Ah, spring. It feels spring like, in Germany. <laughs> it feels like this is like it could be Christmas next week. Yep. Well oh uh, hopefully hopefully we're getting out of that soon. Because <laughs> it'd be nice to have some warmth. Ah, sleigh bells in the snow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so very much for listening. If you are curious about uh, this show and you want to follow up and engage with us, then you can go to studyingpixels.com slash contact where you can send us an email, you can reach out on social media, or you can fill out a contact form and guess what? It will actually reach us and we read your message. We're looking forward to hear from you and we'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.